This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 7th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul's 13-hour filibuster of the nomination of John Brennan to head the CIA was aimed primarily at getting the White House to answer a fairly simple question. When can the federal government execute an American citizen without the due process afforded under the Constitution? As of this recording, Senator Paul is still waiting for his answer. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, discusses Rand Paul's long night. Rand Paul's epic 13-hour Mr. Smith Goes to Washington filibuster of John Brennan's nomination to the post of CIA director wasn't really about John Brennan. In a sense, it wasn't even really about the nominal focus In principle, this was a filibuster about the question of whether the president has the constitutional authority to do targeted killings like the drone strikes we've been engaged in overseas against American citizens on U.S. soil. And in one sense, that's not something probably that most of us are worried about practically. We don't think we're on the verge of seeing people getting a hellfire missile dropped on them during their cafe experience, as uh, Paul put it at one memorable point. Uh, But it is, in a way, a symbol of the bizarre situation in which we find ourselves post 9-11, that it is so difficult to get an unambiguous answer to something that seems like it should be such a no-brainer, that even on this most extreme possible scenario, it is difficult to get an administration to unambiguously declare the constraints on its own powers, declare a hard limit and say, yes, there is a line somewhere and that line is here. Uh, And so in a way, we saw over the course of those 13 hours, a critique that went beyond a hypothetical scenario about drone attacks in the US and even beyond uh, the apparently constrained but in reality massively discretionary campaigns of targeted killings overseas. Uh, We saw really a critique, uh, maybe the the most uh, extensive and comprehensive uh, critique of post-9-11 war on terror strategy that we've seen from an elected official in the United States that touched on warrantless wiretapping and fusion centers and the general idea of uh, as, as Paul again put it, a perpetual war, a battlefield America, a war without uh, real boundaries in time or space. Some of the more legalistic analyses that were offered by Ted Cruz and Mike Lee focused a great deal on uh, what Attorney General Eric Holder had said both earlier in the day and in previous statements. And a lot of that focused on this standard uh, by which uh, the government would uh, act Uh, in accordance with the Fifth Amendment if they could apply it in certain circumstances. Uh, And we've talked about that before. In a way, this, uh, I think, colloquy was designed to expose how artificial the appearance of restraints and standards on uh, executive authority in the war on terror really is. Uh, You know, we have nominally a, a white paper that finally leaked to the public, Supposedly, Congress, though certainly not the American public, are going to get to see the longer uh, legal rationalization for these targeted strikes. But what's clear is that the language that's used there, which, by the way, is is never really suggested to be binding. These are the standards that they're 
uh, claiming to follow with the clear caveat that they don't think that this is the only uh, situation in which they could use uh, lethal force uh, against, again, even citizens overseas. Um, but that in, nothing in the principle of that is limiting to foreign countries. Uh, that the logic of uh, taking out supposed imminent threats where imminent doesn't really mean imminent uh, and capture is not feasible where feasibility is again basically a purely executive determination uh, taken literally and seriously doesn't exclude even actions in the U.S. if someone determines that capture is not feasible under the circumstances. Uh, and we even heard Lindsey Graham uh, at one point in exchange with a with, uh, Holder saying, well, when we granted authority under the authorization to use military force after 9-11, we didn't exclude the homeland, uh, which was actually rather disingenuous because uh, there was explicitly language in that authorization that would have said uh, the president may use appropriate force, including in the United States, which was seen as too controversial and removed before that passed. So in some sense, there was a conscious uh, intention to exclude the homeland from the, the battlefield in, in, in a literal sense. Uh, in a way, what was most astonishing to see here was the breadth of the support from some unlikely quarters here. We, we saw varying degrees of praise for uh, Paul's move here coming from the likes of Intelligence Chair Mike Rogers, John Cornyn, Marco Rubio, uh, even the Heritage Foundation where uh, uh, David Addington, Cheney's personal lawyer, was now ensconced, was tweeting stand with Rand hashtags. Um, you know, certainly there, there seemed to be like, on social media uh, a lot of interest and support in, uh, you know, sort of normally dry sort of C-SPAN fodder. And I think it suggests that Rand was very right. At one point early in his filibuster, he suggested that people complain about the lack of bipartisanship in D.C., uh, but it's there. There is bipartisanship about being uninterested in imposing civil liberties safeguards uh, or reining in executive authority in the war on terror. And I think what the reaction to this filibuster shows is that there is a significant constituency out there who is concerned about this and who, if someone is willing to plant a flag and say, wait, this is not a subject of universal consensus. This is something that ought to be debated and not just uh, acquiesced to because 9-11 changed everything and we no longer need to discuss how much power it's appropriate for the president to wield in the name of national security. One of the things that Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and Rand Paul all sort of stressed was uh, with respect to questioning Attorney General Eric Holder was that he seemed to indicate at some point that it would be unconstitutional, but did not go, say it would be explicitly unconstitutional for the president to target someone who is not actively engaged in fighting against uh, the United States. Uh, just I, th I think the, the, the scenario that they keep, kept using was sitting in a cafe. So there, at one point, finally, in a, in a procedure that resembled pulling teeth more than anything, uh, Holder seemed to acknowledge first that, yes, dropping a Hellfire missile on someone at a cafe would be inappropriate. And uh, after a little bit more badgering, he was willing to uh, amend his inappropriate to unconstitutional. So sort of. in a very sort of, uh, he, did, he, did, he did actually at one point say, yes, unconstitutional. Uh, even that most absurd scenario required so much effort, and, and it's not clear how far he was willing to uh, 
use the word unconstitutional beyond that very specific scenario uh, suggests, well, what we've seen since 9-11 under both the Obama and Bush administrations, which is a reluctance certainly among the legal minds within the administration to acknowledge any hard limits, uh, to ever take anything off the table, to say that there is anything that is clearly too far and that whatever situation might arise, uh, however panicked we might be if there's another attack, uh, there are lines we cannot cross. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work and our other work on targeted killings at Cato.org.